So welcome everyone. I'm Tom Miller, editor of SolarView Magazine, and I'm the marketing director here at Baywa RE Solar Systems. This is our fourth town hall since the COVID crisis began. We're glad you could join us, um, maybe even for the first time. Um, and you can find all the previous town halls, both in podcast and video format, on our website at solar-distribution.com. Uh, a note that if you're watching this town hall in your browser, please log out and log back in using the Zoom app. It's the only way you'll be able to hear and see all the guests today. Um, I want to say a few notes before we get rolling. Baywa and Unirac have partnered to offer solar contractors free permitting design services uh, through May 15th, 2020. We'll share that, uh, the email in the chat and in the show notes, and we'll put links um, in our town hall follow-up emails for you. So you definitely won't miss that. Um, another note is if you haven't filled out the COVID-19 SIA survey, we encourage you to do so. That survey is ongoing um, and they want, you, they want you to keep filling it out. Uh, SIA uses that data um, to lobby on your behalf. So please participate if you can. And finally, I'd like to plug our Friday mindfulness sessions. We have a rotating group from Baywa who is running them. Our VP of operations, uh, David Dunlap, ran one last week. So if you're interested in mindfulness um, or just want a place to practice for a little, these are a really nice opportunity. Um, again, those are, those are Friday at 8.30 uh, a.m. Pacific. Uh, and you can find the link uh, in the follow-up email to the town hall and also in your, in your registration email. So I want to hand it over to our CEO, uh, Boaz Soifer, who's going to share a few remarks and I believe some slides, and then we'll kick in um, our finance and economic discussion. We will be taking questions as we go, so please add your questions for our guests in the chat window, and you can also tweet your questions at hashtag SolarTownHall. As always, we want to be as conversational with these as possible, so let us know your questions. Um, and without further ado, Let's uh, hand it over to Boaz Soifer. Thanks for joining us, as always, Boaz. Thank you, Tom. Uh, so yeah, it's again an honor to be here with all of you. Um, we have some really uh, great and exciting um, panelists today, and um, I also see that we have a good um, list of attendees as well. So thanks for being with us. Um, I think um, the the theme for today is really timely. Um, we're uh, we basically went into crisis mode March 16th, um, so we're coming up on a month. Um, and, and in that time, uh, we, as, as well as all of you, have um, probably formed a response team. Um, you formed some action plans. Um, together, we talked about how our businesses are adapting um, to the current reality in terms of remote sales and remote site assessments. And now I believe it's time to look forward and think about um, how the industry is going to need to evolve in order to meet kind of a, a completely new set of parameters. Um, I thought um, real quick I could share with you a couple of slides from um, our um, internal scenario planning and, and just um, let you see the same view that, that we're seeing. So just real quick, um, uh, a couple of data points about how the residential solar market is developing. Um, Green Tech Media a couple of weeks ago projected a residential contraction of 16 to 34 percent compared to last year. 
um, and that's for the entire year. Um, and that includes a 50% drop in Q2, which is about a 67% drop from what they had planned. Um, and what you can see um, in the lighter green bars here is their best case and worst case scenarios um, for Q2. Now this data is a couple of weeks old, I'm looking for an update. Um, but in the meantime, we've been talking with our customers, um, hundreds of them, um, and asking, how is your business performing um, or how do you expect it to perform in Q2 compared to last year um, and Q3 and Q4? And an interesting thing that we've seen in the last week is that the average um, response is dropping for all three quarters. So, so in the week of April 3rd, our customers were saying on average that they were gonna be down 24% year over year in Q2. And then the week of April 10th, they were saying down 36%. And likewise drops um, in their expectations for Q3 and Q4. Uh, and we've also been asking our vendors, um, what are you expecting? And while um, their expectations of a 30% drop in Q2 um, didn't change from week to week, their expectations for Q3 and Q4 did drop. And I think what that points to is um, our collective assessment of how big the economic impact of the coronavirus crisis will be is, in, is, is getting worse. Um, the, the expectations are getting worse. I also included this little snippet from a survey that Challenger did. Um, in the week of March 6th, um, uh, respondents, which are, are businesses, were saying there's a, a 3.7 month lag before the things go back to normal. Um, the week of March um, 18th, it was four and a half months. And then in April, it's become 5.8 months. So again, that points to um, the collective expectations about economic recovery becoming a little more dire. Um, and the news in the last week um, has really started to reflect that. Um, so how a variety of people are thinking about economic recovery, um, the Wall Street Journal says the economic recovery will be fragile, partial, and slow. Um, the New York Times said economic pain will persist long after lockdown ends. Um, and then just two days ago, uh, the IMF released a report um, that the global economy will suffer the worst blow um, since the 1930s. Um, and, and they're basically calling for um, a GDP contraction in um, developed markets of greater than 5% and uh, not returning to 2019 levels until 2022. And the, as we start to look at the, at the prospect of economic recovery, we realize how complex it is um, in that it combines elements of public health, um, civil liberties even, and, um, and of course, economic variables. So, you know, there's a possibility of reopening the economy and having a second wave of infections. Um, there's the, the possibility of a large scale testing and contact tracing effort being launched in advance of a vaccine being available. Um, and that comes with some privacy and civil liberty issues. Um, even if all of those um, issues are handled smoothly, 
um, there's still a lot of question about whether people are going to want to gather in large groups um, and um, and kind of return to a normal way of life. So big parts of the economy, travel, hospitality, and entertainment in particular, might see a much slower recovery than other parts of the economy, which could put a drag on, on the whole system. Um, and then there's also this question that I think, especially in the solar industry, we wanna start asking, which is, do we really want to go back to normal? Do we really want to define normal the way um, that we, we might have assumed? And, and one of the great stories coming out of this crisis is um, the radical reduction in pollution levels. I think I saw an estimate that we've gone back 25 years in terms of pollution levels. And um, I, I was looking at um, Google images of the Himalayas from Jandahar um, yesterday thinking I might be able to drop one of those in this slide. Um, but, you know, the, the, the mountains haven't been visible for 30 years and now suddenly they are. Um, so I think there are some really interesting questions for us um, as an industry, uh, as well as a society about um, whether we want to retain some of the silver linings. Um, so, so I just wanted to share that. Um, I'm super excited today that um, we're talking about the economy and talking about um, solar financing in relationship to that. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you all for being here. Great. Thanks, Boaz. Um, and I think there's a whole town hall on this bigger topic of the economy and recovery. But I would like to transition to today's town hall um, topic. And we're going to focus on the economy, but also on finance. So let's start to bring up the panel. Uh, we have uh, Robin Kenkel. She's the risk and business development leader at Mosaic. We have Greg Fisher. He's senior manager for business development at Sunlight Financial. We have Martha Amram. She's the CEO at Glint. She's an economist and a board member at the Sloan School of Management. We have Vikram Agarwal. He's founder and CEO of Energy Sage. Jeremy White. He's the solar division leader at Robco Electric. And uh, we also have Baywa's very own Rachel Shapira. She's the director of residential finance at Baywa RE Solar Systems. So again, please add your questions to the chat window. We'll take them as we go uh, for our guests, or you can tweet them to Solar Town Hall as well. Um, so Boaz mentioned that the recovery is, you know, it's a fraught conversation and a complex subject, and we're all looking for information uh, to help us make decisions now. So I'd like to start the conversation on that theme uh, of information. Greg, I'd like to kick it off with you. Um, you mentioned to me the other day um, that finance companies are in some ways canaries in the coal mine. What did, what did you mean by that? What information are you seeing uh, and others are not? And what is that telling you uh, about the road ahead? So one of the things that we started looking at um, immediately when we realized this was going to be a you know, kind of a, a long uh, standing situation the market was going to have to deal with was what was happening um, first and foremost with, with credit approvals. So uh, often uh, a solar installer, uh, as, as many people here are aware, you know, it starts when uh, ind customer indicates they want to go financing, um, it'll start with the credit approval. And that usually precedes uh, a contract being signed by anywhere between, you know, seven to, to 25 or 30 days. Um, and so for finance companies and installers, maybe got a, a strong pipeline and they were looking at their March numbers and saying, hey, you know, we're still pretty healthy and solid. Um, we are seeing obviously a decrease in credit approvals. Uh, which of course will lead to a decrease in, in loan approvals, which ultimately probably in the next 30 to 45 days will lead to a decrease in funded loans, 
which indicates the systems you know being installed so we are seeing this kind of on a rolling basis and we're also seeing this very much on a regional basis as certain uh, parts of the country were a little bit slower to place any restrictions uh, on contractors or permitting jurisdictions um, uh, where we certainly saw corridors in the northeast and certainly on the west coast um, you know permit applications and, and installations have come to a to a grinding halt and so um, in that regard you know we kind of see this a little bit on a rolling basis and we also see some uh, relative recovery happening on somewhat of a rolling basis as now there might be some optimism that parts of the country are looking at uh, slow and gradual plans to reopen the economy and certainly allow um, services such as solar construction to continue. Right, great. Um, Robin, I'd, I'd like to bounce it over to you. Um, so when, you, when you're thinking about risk assessment, um, actually, I first want to read you this quote from an installer, uh, or I'm sorry, an investor. He said, in 20 years of investing, I've never seen such high sensitivity to initial conditions and such a wide range of outcomes with no real precedent to help guide thinking. And I think that really sums up a lot of wh where we're at now. Um, with such a wide range of outcomes, um, how is your ri risk department making decisions right now? Um, what are those conversations like? And I believe you're muted, so you have to unmute yourself. Perfect. Can you hear me? Yeah, great. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me as part of this panel. Very excited to be here. Of course. Um, yeah, we are definitely focused on understanding consumer and also installer impacts from COVID-19 um, and looking at the actions that we need to take in order to mitigate those risks. Um, so, you know, obviously, like we've had a lot of consumers that have filed for unemployment, they've lost their jobs. So trying to understand the impacts there. And then also, you know, what our installers are facing, especially, you know, given that many of them are small businesses. Um, these actions really include many different things that we've been working on. And I've been very busy over the past couple of weeks, but, you know, credit tightening, um, stronger installer controls around disbursement schedules and also um, proof of requirements for those projects so that we ultimately can protect the consumer um, and, you know, earlier and more proactive collection strategies. Um, at the same time, we're also thinking about um, what's going to happen moving forward and how this has changed our industry um, and what opportunities that we can take as an industry to streamline um, you know, some of the pain points in the industry, um, hopefully, you know, more online sales, it's going to become more efficient um, in the sales process, hopefully bringing down those customer acquisition costs um, and, uh, you know, just overall a better customer experience moving forward. Yeah, great. Thank you. I'd like to pull in a, a solar contractor now, um, Jeremy from Robco. Jeremy, how is Robco approaching this crisis um, in terms of information gathering? Is there specific information you're looking for to help you make decisions? How are you pri prioritizing what you're focused on right now? Yeah, we've spent, I've spent a lot of time over the last month uh, watching uh, some of the webinars, the training videos. I appreciate you guys putting these on. I've uh, watched the previous three to this and just kind of seeing where the industry is going. We've seen about a 50% decline in uh, sold contracts over the last month, month and a half. And we're, as a company, we're watching it on a day-to-day -day basis. We're actually looking at how many leads are coming in, 
uh, how many proposals are going out versus how many sold contracts. And we're comparing that to last year. And uh, uh, I'm even going back to the year before to kind of see year over year what we can really expect uh, the outcome to be um, and try to predict it the best that we can. Um, but so far, we're it's about 50% drop off uh, year over year from last year to, to this year. Okay, great. Thanks for that insight. Um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit um, and look at the economy more broadly uh, and what we're up against. So we're gonna we're gonna go over to Martha now. Martha, you shared some slides with me um, a couple days ago, and I'm gonna pull up a few of those now. And I'd like you to walk us through how an economist thinks about the forecasted costs of social distancing in particular. And this information relates to how the states and federal government, uh, how they're gonna approach policies and start to reopen or keep certain areas closed. So it may have a, quite a bit uh, significant impact on how long the crisis lasts. Um, so let me go ahead and share my screen. Try to make this as seamless as possible. Okay, hopefully you can see it. It works. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for having me on this town hall. Um, as uh, you know, we're all entrepreneurs and in the energy business. Uh, you may know our company had a former name, Watts On, and we changed it to Glint uh, about a quarter ago. Uh, but we are very familiar with the energy industry. But my prior life was as an academically trained economist. So uh, looking at um, how an economist would do social dist measure the value of social distancing, this is a framework that uh, is used uh, by some researchers, uh, came out about three weeks ago at the University of Chicago, happy to send the link around, and it combines a health model with an economics model. So health, we've all seen flatten the curve and so on. Uh, economists don't really have too much to add to that. So that would be the black box on the left. The value of a statistical life is a well-known part of economics literature. So we might think that the value of your life is the lost earnings. That's only part of it. You know, it also depends on your willingness to pay to, you know, and what you value your life. And so that, by flipping the equation to say, how would someone actually uh, pay to extend their life? And where are situations in which they've done that? Economists have collected lots of data over the years and come up with a methodology that's very data intense, uh, very not academic, but uh, real life driven. And that's called this value of a statistical life. Um, it is used in EPA calculations to say, oh, pollution harms uh, it leads to hospitalizations and deaths, and here's the economic cost of that to the economy. It's used by the Department of Transportation in planning freeways and highways, again, pollutants or crashes and so on. So you won't find argument within the economics community about the value of statistical life. Um, it, dis it is a little bit foreign to everybody else. Um, you will find argument from the Trump administration. This is one of the things they took out of the EPA assessment protocols. But when you take the epidemiology model and the value of a life, um, I should note that the value of statistical life varies by age. So uh, younger people have higher values than older people. Um, you get a loss to the economy if people die. And you can also calculate um, the hospital capacity issue of COVID-19, which is how many more people would die because the hospitals are flooded if we don't flatten the curve. 
So that's the basic framework. It's a little spreadsheet, essentially, when it gets boiled down to it. But we all know that these health, health models have huge amounts of embedded assumptions and are highly uncertain. But at least this is a start. Great. And the answers are, if you look at current forecasts, I think the University of Washington one that the White House is using is the one that the Chicago academics used as well. The average answer from EPA and others is that the value of statistical life is 10 million. Multiply it through by age cohorts and so on, you get $8 trillion loss to the economy if we don't flatten the curve with social distancing. And then if we look at what kind of losses to the economy are we actually experiencing, you know, keep that 8 trillion number in mind and you can see, just as we heard from, you know, feet on the street here on this call, everybody's revising downward each week. It's getting more and more down. So yesterday, the IMF released their forecast globally, which is a $9 trillion loss over 18 months, or essentially from now into the end of 2021, a little bit longer than 18 months. And so that's kind of like on the one hand, we've got $8 trillion in the U.S. loss due to uh, loss prevention with social distancing, and we can compare that to the nine trillion in GDP decline. Great. I'm going to stop my screen share there, uh, Martha. Thank. Oops. Let's see. Got to get out of it on my end. Um, as a as a follow up to that, um, you know, can you talk us through? Um, when we're going to hit the bottom. I've read various reports on how we come out of this. None of them look good. Um, but what's it going to take to get us back to, to normalcy, to a good economy and acceptable public health costs? How are you thinking about the feasibility of that right now? I think um, the threads of that answer have already been presented in this uh, webinar. For example, we started with consumer sentiment. Well, until the consumer feels like spending... Um, lots of people can't sell solar or even other kinds of products. So we got to get consumer sentiment to bottom out and get a baseline of a new normal of traction on spending. And that's going to have two precursors. One is consumers need to feel comfortable about health. And second, they need to feel comfortable about um, our government stimulus programs, which are going to tie us together and bite us over this time period. Until we have those two precursors in place, at an emotional level, we won't see co consumer sentiment bottom out. So we've got a health issue, a government stimulus issue, and then a consumer sentiment issue. Right, great. Thank you for that, for that insight, I appreciate that. Um, as we think about those implications, um, I'd like to bring on Vikram <laughs> to help us think about some of the optimistic outlooks. Uh, Vikram, you wrote a fairly bullish piece on LinkedIn called Why Solar Will Survive COVID-19. And I recommend everybody check it out and we'll share a link to that in the show notes. Um, and in the article, you lay out four reasons for optimism. Can you go over those for us now and why are you so optimistic? And maybe, you know, what's your time scale for that? Yeah, uh, so you're going to test my memory now, huh? For yeah. <laughs> Uh, all those four points. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for uh, joining the, the town hall today. Yeah, I think I think uh, we are we remain quite optimistic. Uh, for one, I think I shared a couple of data points uh, from Energy Sage website uh, last time, maybe a couple of weeks ago in this town hall, 
Uh, I think uh, just to just to review a little bit and give you what has happened since. So we definitely, I think like everybody else is pointing, uh, people's businesses are down, call it 20, 25, 30% year over year. Uh, that was some. That was a similar kind of experience that we have had on Energy Sage. Uh, March, of course, I think there were two two weeks in March, the second half of March, where we saw pretty significant declines in traffic, um, uh, week over week declines, and of course, uh, pretty strong year over year declines. And since then, actually, the first two weeks of April have been uh, relatively strong for us. I think we are seeing a pretty strong uptick in traffic and consumer interest in uh, people signing up to get solar quotes for solar. And we are seeing double digit, uh, pretty strong double double digit growth uh, week over week uh, for the last two weeks. Yeah. Um, I'm keeping our fingers crossed uh, that uh, this this trend continues. Uh, and I think as, as all of, uh, all of uh, everybody in the solar industry knows, I think our business is seasonal. It kind of tracks the the days of sun, summer. Uh, so April, it starts picking up and goes all the way to the October, November timeframe. So we're starting to see some signs that yes, consumers are interested in solar. They remain interested. They are trying to learn. Uh, they're engaging with us on both online and offline with our energy advisors. So there is there are good signs. I think consumers are definitely delaying their decisions. They're taking longer to make, make their decisions. Uh, but what we're hearing from people is that they are still quite interested in solar. And that was one of the points that we were making that right. solar is now, uh, I think most American households are quite aware of solar and their interest level in solar is quite high. And I think they're taking this opportunity to engage online, to get their homework done. They have time, they have interest. So they're taking this, this opportunity to do their homework and be ready to make a decision once things stabilize. I think as Martha said, as people start gaining more confidence in the industry, in the in the economy, because they're more confident that their health will be uh, protected and that the government is there to uh, provide all kinds of stimulus, uh, that consumers will be ready to make that decision. So that right. that is one one point that we made in that article. Number two is I think uh, we saw that uh, in our uh, fifth annual installer survey that the con in industry confidence was all time high in the last five years. So that was that was great sign that we saw. Next, I think as some of you have already mentioned, we are seeing that transition over to online selling, right? So the reason why customer acquisition costs were so high, because we were either generating the leads in person, and then of course, large majority of sales were being in-person kitchen table sale. And because of this um, uh, pandemic, uh, solar companies are more open to now selling online, they're engaging with consumers online. So that is a great sign. And last but not the least, I think towns and other jurisdictions are considering more online permitting. So again, there are there are a couple of, couple of uh, major trends that we are seeing that will allow us to reduce that customer acquisition cost, that those soft costs, so that we can then make solar even more economical for people. And a lot of people are seeing solar as a, they're, they're seeing that energy bills go up. Uh, they are spending more time at home. I think it's putting more focus on their energy costs. Uh, and solar is both a, it can help them in the long term, reduce their energy bills and make them feel better uh, and, and more, more protected. Great. Thanks for that. A little more optimistic outlook. We appreciate that. And before we start to transition into some of the, the financing questions and how financing plays it into consumer sentiment, um, Boaz, I think you wanted to ask Martha a few questions at this point. Maybe you yeah. jump. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, yeah. So, 
so Vikram just spoke to this also, that the, the idea that going into this year, um, installer confidence was at an all-time high about the, the health of the solar industry. And, and something that we've heard a lot um, in the last month is the fundamentals of the economy are still good. This isn't like the Great Recession. This isn't like the Great Depression. We're just putting everything on hold and then it's going to restart. And originally we were hearing V-shaped recovery, et cetera. And, and Martha, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is that still true? Or has the shock that the economy has experienced in the last four weeks um, uh, causing maybe similar effects to what we've seen in, in past recessions or even depressions? Uh, thanks. So there's two parts to this question. Uh, let's just get a fact on the ground. Uh, consumer buying is 70% of our economy's GDP. So we do want to watch consumers and how they react. And within that 70%, um, the two highest quintiles of economic in of in household income comprise most of that uh, uh, consumer spending. So bottom line, about half of GDP is controlled by 40% of US households. And that's who I think we've been selling to in solar. And they have had FICO scores. Uh, we have been able to finance FICO scores going down a bit, but let's say 680 and above. What happens to the folks on the margin around 700, 680, 660, and so on? That's the intersection right there of the massive unemployment that we're seeing and consumer credit and our ability to get out of the economy using financed products. And so I think, uh, to be honest, we're seeing so much unemployment. It's rising rapidly. Uh, three states are already above 16% unemployment rates, and there's 17 states above 10%. 10% was the rate we had in the Great Recession in 2008. So my point is there's a lot of spillover right now from unemployment into the target market where we have been selling solar. So as we pull out that white paper and rethink solar sales models, I think in addition to digital online selling, we need to think about collateralization and securing the financing of solar with less reliance on consumer credit ratings, if we can, so that we can maintain the, the, the size of the target market hopefully even expand it in, with new white paper. But as you can see, these pieces interlock. And finally, I would conclude that the stimulus programs are designed to really target that marginal, you know, 40, 40th, excuse me, 60th percentile down to 40th percentile household, which we thought was on steady footing, but may need help through this economy with unemployment supplements or the $1,200 um, funding that every household's getting and so on those things spill over into credit sentiment and so on. So the, the dance is here between the three parts and it looks a little dicey right now. And it looks dicey because of the slowness to get the money out. And then particularly in small business, which is half the employees in the U S economy. Okay. Today was payroll day. How many small businesses will be able to make payroll in two weeks? The average small business has 28 days of cash on hand we've expired that 28 days right around now. And so the next two weeks look to me like the turnover point. Are we getting the money out to small businesses or are we going to see a wave of bankruptcies? Thank you, Martha. I just want to follow up that, that last point. Um, is the stimulus aimed at the right 
parts of the economy in order to reduce the shock optimally, I guess. That's a really well-posed question because the stimulus has a transition mechanism. If it was, if credit is the grease of the economy and, and the stimulus was just flowing along perfectly greased wheels, banks would have approved these small business loans like, like nobody's business. And we wouldn't be having this conversation. But every single one of those snags along the way creates more economic disarray and makes it harder to recover. And so I'm watching the transmission of funds from the stimulus programs to the end party and the tightening of credit that we've talked about on this call can actually cause a contraction in and of itself. Great. Thank you, Martha. Um, as, we, as we make a transition and, and talk about consumer sentiment and financing and trying to dovetail some of these ideas, I'd like to go over to Rachel. Rachel, um, you said the other day uh, something that kind of surprised me. You said homeowners still don't understand solar. Um, what did you mean by that? What are the things that they don't understand? Um, and there's a lot of complicating factors right now. So what, what, are, what, what were those and what are we up against? Well, I was um, referencing more, I think most people who are outside of the solar industry underestimate how complex and how many players have to work in harmony. To make a single home go solar, effectively a symphony has to be able to play in harmony to have everything line up so that the homeowner can start recognizing the benefits of having an interconnected system producing power well before their finance um, uh, bills come due, whether they have. So um, one of the things that we're seeing right now during the shutdown period is that the sh shutdown has been very uneven across the country, but even within a specific territory, sometimes the ways the different players within that symphony are responding to the shutdown um, varies. So in some places, um, AHJs are open um, and operating, some are closed, some are allowing virtual um, permitting and inspections, some are not. Um, some utilities have slowed down um, the not what they deem as non-essential um, employees work. And financiers are also putting different protections in place and they're doing so in slightly different manners. So we're seeing a disruption effectively within the symphony during the shutdown as um, the different players are responding so differently. And so we're not seeing the same kind of uh, fast moving nice music that we normally see when things are um, operating normally and we're hitting different bottlenecks in different areas as a result. Right. And I, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, is there a role here for the conversation as solar contractors are trying to do online selling for that conversation to be really clear and transparent? You know, um, I want to be clear that before we get your installation up and running, that we might run into issues with local permitting offices. You know, there might be a second wave of the virus in the fall that we might not be able to get you in. We might not be able to inter interconnect you. You know, I want you to be aware of the delays. James, um, can you see a point where the conversation might be about building trust and transparency and that being a focus for the sales process right now and maybe a di differentiator? I'm sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> um, the jurisdictions down here uh, in Nevada, uh, they've actually done a very good job over the last couple of years where our permitting process was already online through the majority of the jurisdictions. 
Uh, the inspectors are still working down here. We have one jurisdiction here. Uh, they've actually gone to online uh, Skype calls for inspections. So we're not seeing the issues that some of the, the rest of the country has seen um, with that. The process has actually been uh, rather smooth over the last month because a lot of those, uh, a lot of those processes were already put in place. Uh, as far as the utilities down here, it's actually going uh, even quicker for us also. Uh, we had one project that we went from uh, contract signing to the utility, changing out the meter and PTO. I think we did it in 23 days, which was the fastest that we'd ever done a project. Uh, that's everything permitting, installation, and uh, dealing with the utility. And typically that process was taking about four to six weeks. So we're actually seeing the opposite where everything's going a lot smoother. Interesting. Um, Greg, I want to go over to you. As we face up to the new realities, uh, financing companies are having to make some adjustments right now. Can you walk us through some of what those changes are and what the likelihood that those are short-term and long-term? So I think in, uh, you know, partly in, in response to what, what Martha mentioned earlier, um, there certainly are some, some things I think that capital providers, and again, uh, companies like Mosaic and, and Sunlight, were not actually the, the bank or the financial institutions, but rather the, the avenue to the market. But these capital providers realize and recognize that there's probably some changes that they're going to have to make. Um, how quickly can they make those changes? Um, and also what plays into it is, is you know, where, what is the source of that capital? So credit unions tend to move uh, a little bit more slowly. They tend to be a little more methodical and they tend to be a little more traditional versus maybe larger uh, institutional uh, investment banks. But that being said, in the short term, um, what capital providers are trying to do is still make capital available without wildly and drastically changing some of the credit requirements. And so what they're looking at is products that tend to have the most risk. Um, so longer term products, maybe like a 25 year loan, um, makes capital providers a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, that's on the consumer side. On the installer side, um, you know, we're seeing a shift away from advancing funding and payments uh, to contractors and trying to make concessions, whether it's on pricing or making additional products available uh, that might be a little more comfortable with the capital markets. Um, but everybody's looking at, you know, how can we uh, reduce risk and exposure while also making sure that we are uh, enabling our partners to continue to push business forward to, to the best of their abilities. And so um, I think a lot of finance providers and companies like Sunlight are looking for what that right balance and approach is currently. I think there's, um, you know, there's no playbook for this, uh, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, whether some of these changes are going to be short-term or long-term remain to be seen. I think access or maybe, uh, not having access to something like a 25 year product is probably a short term um, solution uh, as well as some of the funding changes that, that we're making. But ultimately, you know, the capital providers are typically already a little bit wary to begin with about financing uh, solar, right? They don't have 30, 40, 50 years uh, of data points like they do in other consumer financing asset classes. Um, so of course this heightens that, that, uh, those concerns. And so they're looking at ways where, um, as opposed to just shutting it off, where can they make modest adjustments and changes that don't, um, 
ultimately provide long-term hurt or harm to our installers or the consumer, but of course then mitigate that exposure and that risk that they might be facing until, again, you know, we return to some semblance of, of normalcy in the consumer finance markets. Great. Yeah. Um, Robin, before I bounce over to you, I just want to remind people that they could put questions in the chat for our guests. Um, so Robin, yeah, uh, anything to, to bounce off of from what Greg said? How are you seeing lending changing in the, in the next year or so? Yeah, I think, you know, we definitely expect lending to tighten in the short, maybe midterm, um, but open back up as early as Q4, most likely the first half of 2020. Um, of course, it's going to depend on the geographic response of, you know, the different COVID impacts. Um, at the same time, I think it's, it's really important, as Greg mentioned, you know, lenders are tightening disbursement schedules and, you know, making sure that any advanced disbursements um, are somewhat limited and based off of, you know, factual data like permits or photo proof of install. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, having very, very great and, um, you know, aligned strategic partnerships with distributors is very important in this in this new world that we live in, in order to mitigate risk. So that way we know that partners are able to have access to equipment and they're able to install as they can as perhaps some of this, um, you know, tightening uh, lessons a little bit and some of the AHJs open back up and begin to issue permits and allow um, folks to install. So I think, you know, that's really one of the main, um, you know, most important things is the ability to have equipment and the ability uh, to continue in a somewhat normal install process. Right. Greg, I want to bounce back to you real quick. Um, what, uh, what should be on the top of a contractor's mind now when they search for a financing partner if they don't already have them? Is it, is it just about the terms, the dealer fee? What are those elements and, and what can they do to put their best foot forward? So it is interesting because um, I think two to three years ago, um, small to mid-sized solar contractors felt fortunate to forge a, a partnership with a finance company. Uh, now the finance companies are uh, doing everything they can to uh, bring as many installers onto their network and platform. And so the installer is almost interviewing uh, the finance partner, if you will. And you know some of the questions that we have uh, received from installers that were looking to uh, potentially engage with Sunlight uh, on our platform have really centered around you know what what does our liquidity look like, um, you know or our, our our powder if you will. Meaning, do we have the ability to fund projects? You know the installers. While we want to make sure that the installers are meeting all their requirements um, and that they're mitigating risk and that they're living up to the contractual agreements they have with the homeowner, they want to make sure that if they go ahead and they commit the resources and the time materials to this project. Uh, that we're going to fund them on time. Um, so we are we are receiving more questions uh, about that, and we are, um, you know, to the best of our ability, trying to provide some, um, you know, some concrete proof of what you know the stability of our organization looks like. And I imagine that Mosaic and, and other finance companies are are having to have the same conversations. But ultimately, you know, the risk I, I shouldn't position it just as from a finance perspective that the risk is perceived to be with the contractor or the consumer. Um, there's also very much a perception from the contractor that, you know, am I going to be able to get funded if I partner with this company? And, and quite frankly, um, it's a fair question because even in uh, very good times in the solar industry, you know, we've seen finance companies not be able to meet their, their obligations and their requirements and, and put contractors 
um, in, in, in a tough spot. So it is a fine balance, right? I mean, we truly view it as a partnership um, because ultimately, you know, the, the, the economy, whether it's one, two, three, four, it will come back. You know, the industry will thrive and we need to have good solid contractors uh, in place to continue to meet the demand. And so we want to make sure that that, that, that balance is met uh, and that those partnerships remain strong. Great. Um, Martha, I want to kick it over to you. We, we got a question from Josh. Um, he has, he says, this is an election year. Um, and what are the panelists thoughts on the impact of solar, uh, with a new administration taking office? And you are muted, by the way, I can, I can unmute you. Uh, terrific. Can you hear me now? Yep. Uh, a new administration. So with that premise, um, one of the projects I'm working on, one of the co-founders of our company is Saul Griffith. Uh, and many people know him from other lab. And Saul has put together a roadmap of how we electrify the economy, shifting from fossil fuels to electric power resources. The reason being that fossil fuels generate so much power waste um, that we, if we don't eliminate them, we're over-investing in a clean future. So um, it just, why have 2x or 3x the generation capacity when a lot of it's going into waste? So with that in mind, um, a new administration needs a business model and technologies that drive energy saving and renewables into every home and every community in the country. And so two of the things that we might want to think about are how to make solar super simple. So we might be paying local jurisdictions for online permitting, saying, I'll pay you 250 per install, just to have the online functionality. Because as we think back to the COVID-19 economy, cities and states are in terrible shape, expenses rising, revenues plummeting. And so this small thing called pay $250 might have big eyes and ears from a city that's grabbing for funding. So as we look through little simple things like that, that actually speed solar, we can make it easier to buy in every jurisdiction in the country with city support. So that's one thing I'd look for in a new administration, driving residential energy savings and renewables. Second one is uh, solar car carports. Like let's get every Walmart involved with a solar carport and use that as local community uh, solar, not greenfield sites because we are running out of those greenfield sites. And with that parking lot there, modular construction, perhaps we can change the financing model as well. So okay. time to pull out the sheet of paper and realize that COVID has put our local resources under enormous stress and figure out how the small things in solar can be sped up and made cheaper. And let's just essentially buy our way to efficiency as we interact with utilities and cities. Um, it might not increase the price of solar very much, but it might lead to a much broader market. Great. Um, Rachel, I'd like to kick it over to you and, and just quick thought on resilience. Um, after the fires in California, some lenders had relief programs for those who lost their homes. Are you aware of similar programs for solar loans? You know, what should, show, what's, what should solar contractors know about those programs? Um, well, I would actually recommend if you're working with a financier that you contact them to find out if they are planning to come up with relief programs for people impacted by the economic crisis. 
some lenders have programs in place under for people in certain life circumstances. Um, they may be adjusting them uh, to expand a bit with COVID, um, but definitely contact the financiers that you're working with and ask them on behalf of your um, your customers so that when those questions come in from the people you've sold to, you have an answer ready. And I think it's reasonable to put some pressure on the accounts that you work with to say, this is a need that I anticipate the customers we share having um, because you know everyone should be aware of the economic reality that everyone is facing right now. Great. Um, Martha, you got a comment from Henry. He says, you have my vote. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, thanks. And, you know, going back to how do we get a new administration, I think this group on the phone, if we can figure out a plan to engage young voters, we know that the issues we care about are the issues they care about. They'll drive, let's drive them to the polls. Great. I saw Vikram nodding his head a lot when Martha was talking about um, uh, buying our way into higher efficiency in solar. Vikram, did you want to respond to that? I, I cannot agree more with Martha. I think uh, just to just to make uh, add to Martha's point, this time, 10% of the voters will be young voters. Uh, it's an increase. It's a dramatic increase. I think in the last election, only 4% of the voters were, I think, below 25. This time around 10%. They can swing the election pretty pretty quickly. Uh, and efficiency is the key to our growth in this industry, right? So if we can make permitting more more easy, and that is what Energy Sage is trying to do on a daily basis, is make solar more accessible and affordable for the mass market consumers. Make it really easy for folks to engage with multiple solar companies, get all the information in one place in a simplified format. So we cannot agree more. So thank you, Martha. Great. Thanks, Vikram. Robin, I want to shoot it over to you really quick, and then I want to wrap up. But uh, along that point of, of making things more efficient, do you see uh, in the coming weeks and months ahead the, the loan application process getting more complicated in any way, or is that pretty much locked down? Or what, what, Are there any changes there you're seeing? I don't think that there's necessarily any changes to the loan process. I think we have that pretty much dialed in and most of the lenders have online platforms where customers can apply. I think if anything, it's going to get easier to where we have contact free, um, the ability for a homeowner to receive the application on their cell phone, click a button and mosaic already has that. Um, and we're going to be launching that out very soon for our solar folks as well. We already have that for our home improvement vertical. So if anything, I think it's going to get easier. Um, and then, um, you know, obviously credit tightening um, in the short term um, will likely be the only inhibitor there. Great, thanks. Martha, you had a short ad on the efficiency of sales question. Do you wanna jump in there and then we'll wrap up? Oh, sure. I just wanted to say uh, data from Australia says six cents a kilowatt hour of residential sales uh, installed cost. And the reason being much, much faster permitting from time customer signs to time you're switched on can be three or four days. And so there is a model out there and there's evidence to show this can be done. So let's grab the moment. Great, nice points, Martha. So uh, before we hand it back over to Boaz to close our town hall today, Rachel, you shared four takeaways with me that you thought would be interesting for solar contractors right now. Can you share those with us? Absolutely. So first, if you are a installer that relies mostly on cash sales, um, this is the time to start looking for a finance partner. Um, 
consumer behavior is, uh, you know, data over time shows that even people who are fine financially through a recession are more hesitant to spend their nest egg on any project during the recession for fear that they might lose their job too. So financing is going to become an only increasingly relevant part of the solar industry. So secure that finance provider. Uh, two, um, if your customers are having trouble paying their loans, contact your financier to see if there is a relief program. Um, and if not, pressure them to create one. Say, I would also recommend that you should not be shy about asking your financier about how well capitalized they are. How confident are they that they are going to continue to be able to stay, keep their doors open and continue to fund your growth? Um, and then number four, I think it's reasonable to expect that solar is going to come back quicker than the general economy. Um, but don't be surprised if solar lenders, as Robin and Greg have been indicating, will make some changes to their um, requirements or underwriting criteria that could impact your close ratios. Um, so, because even if they don't change the underwriting requirements, more consumers will have worse credit or worse debt to income ratios and therefore might um, qualify for smaller loan or financed amounts or might not or might not qualify. So we should expect some impact to close ratios just by virtue of the downturn in the economy. Great. But there are a lot of options and different financiers are available. So um, if you don't like the solutions that one is offering, you can absolutely talk to another. Great. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I want to thank all of our guests today before we hand it over to Boaz. We really appreciate this. This was a great conversation. I feel like we could have gone on for another half an hour, so maybe we can do another session. Um, but to wrap up the conversation, uh, before we move to Boaz, I just want to mention next week, we're going to have a very special Earth Day town hall. We have some special guests coming uh, and there'll be a public presentation from Solar Energy International. They're a global solar training organization and they have a very big audacious goal to help meet our 2050 climate targets. I was astonished when I heard about this goal and what they're trying to do. And I think it's just the kind of thing we need right now, these visionary ideas to, to push for. So please come to the next town hall uh, and, and you can hear all about what they're doing. Uh, we're gonna need millions of solar jobs to achieve those 2050 goals and SEI, Solar Energy International has a plan to do it. Um, I also say Baywa and Unirac have partnered uh, to offer solar contractors free permitting design services through May 15th. So make sure you check that out. Our mindfulness session is on Friday at 8.30 a.m. Pacific. Um, so yes, come and uh, just take a moment uh, and have a little mindfulness uh, with us in, the, in this tough time. So that's all for me. I'll pass it over to Boaz, um, but thank you all for coming. And yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Tom. Um, I, I'll keep it real brief here. Um, I agree with you. That was a fantastic panel. Um, Martha, I have to tell you, um, I got a note from one of our team members um, saying, I think Martha is my new hero. Um, I really appreciate you coming on um, and um, supplementing our solar family with um, a bigger picture perspective. Um, I learned a lot today. Um, I'm especially thinking about um, the the 60th to 40th percentile um, and what they represent in terms of swinging the economy um, back to um, being um, functional or, or high functioning even and how can the solar industry respond to um, addressing that part of the market in particular. 
Um, so thank you everybody for joining. Uh, again, it's a pleasure and an honor and I look forward to seeing you all next week and hang in there.